the Connecticut market is is more efficient than it's ever been and hard to even predict the pricing because there's an X flow and a and a a, sur a resurgence that's happening that you haven't seen since 2008. It's kind of exciting. So now it's 401. Let's start the meeting. Boom, we've begun. <laughs> let me at least introduce I was you. already going. And then we yeah, exactly. get into it. Um, so, and uh, I see people pouring in right now. We got our first 36, but there's new people coming in every second, which is uh, very exciting. So I have two city mouse, Louise Phillips and Roberto Cabrera. And I have two country mouse, Scott Hobbs and John Engel. And uh, I thought that this would be a good interplay. Uh, and we could talk about the New York market, the suburban market, and how the New York market is affecting the suburban market. And if we can, uh, we're going to open it up to questions from the people uh, and open it open up a conversation. But I guess let's begin with how's the market, Louise? I was just sharing about what is going on it has kind of been a, not necessarily unpredictable, but exciting because Lord knows I've been planting a lot of seeds for the last six months and, you know, and my buds are popping, meaning I probably will do, you know, hopefully sending out about $20 million worth of transaction summaries of deals that are I mean, I got two contracts signed last week. I got two deals accepted yesterday. I'm about to do one today. We're looking like it could be an eight deal week, which I haven't seen that in a long time. So it's exciting. Is that because sellers are readjusting their expectations and they're meeting the market where it, where it, uh, where it is? Or are you finding that demand has suddenly surged? Uh, I think it's, it's multifaceted. Um, in my experience, and Roberto's may be different, but you know, I really find that I, I think of myself as an educator, not a salesperson, first of all. And so I have been working with the people that I have. I have, I, have, I think, 40 listings right now. It's probably 126 million in listings. And, um, and finally, from June 22nd to now, they're starting to pluck off, you know? And I think that what's happening is that my advice has been stop listening to the noise. You are your best expert. You know what your risk tolerance is and you're not looking for the bottom of the market. You're looking for a home. So yes, I sold this apartment to you four years ago and yeah, you're probably gonna be a little bit underwater, but look at what that was listed at 18 months ago and look at it where it is today. And you're just looking to buy the next chapter in your upgrade. Um, on the, on the contrary, the empty nesters, I'm saying, you know, if you're selling your asset in Connecticut and coming to the city, it depends on what you, where you are in your life of what, whether you make the decision to rent or buy. I think so it's all over the place. I think the market's all over the place. I mean, I don't think there's a, there's a solid sense of where pricing is. We don't have enough price discovery with regards to, I mean, from, I think the amount of COVID deals that have been done are probably close to 2000 now and only three, you know, only about 25% of them have closed. So we really don't have a solid idea of where the pricing is. And I think pricing is everything. And we have sellers who are pricing in pre code, you know, they're aspirationally pricing in the wrong place. And, you know, and buyers who are seeking to have 20% off and that doesn't exist either. No, I mean, in, you know, no, it just it doesn't. doesn't exist. And the truth of the matter is our market, you know, I'm not sure, John, you'll speak to your market, but, but I know my Connecticut clients who reached out to me and said, Hey, will you list my apartment in New York? Because they're New Yorkers that want to come to Connecticut. And I'm like, I am not an expert in Connecticut. That being said, you know, they still want, they paid for whatever they paid for in 2008 and they want that price. They want what their neighbor got in 2015. And it's just, it doesn't, it's not, you cannot make up the market. And, and I agree that there's data, there's limited data, Roberto, but the truth is every deal, I had 15 deals in contract, March 18th, 15 deals, 13 of them closed. Every one of them had a credit. So when you have a recorded price, it is not the price. 
So where do you get, both of you, where do you get your information about accurate pricing? I dollars. You, you gotta call, call people. I call Roberto, how you doing buddy? Talk to me about that apartment. And, and I get real time data. And then when I'm talking to my clients, I'm like, listen, they've been on the market for 37 days. They've had two showings. I don't care that they're asking that much money. You should call that broker and have them list it. I have them listed for the same price. If it's, you know, I have turned away more business because I, 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 I care too much for them to mislead them. And I really mean that. How do you, Roberto, where do you get your pricing data? How do you find out? Phone how calls, phone calls. I constantly am calling because you see that something's in the contract. You have to, and it's also about our, we've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing this 22 years. You have a lot of relationships. You have, you have to call people and find out like, listen, how close were you to ask? Where, you know, how, you know, on, on top of that, what sort of, how many showings were you getting? Like I have a property that I, that I had two properties that went into contract. And I honestly, I feel that we got lucky because aside from those particular showings, there was no one calling for the next two, three, four weeks, maybe one call, two calls. So if we didn't get that particular deal, we were, we were, you know, we were nowhere. Yeah. So, I would agree with that. I, I read yesterday, I think in the post, they said that uh, rumors of New York's demise are greatly exaggerated, that oh. New York is doing just fine. I mean, I, I wouldn't say just fine. I think we have, a, we have a long road in front of us, but I believe that, you know, we all know, hum I mean, for me, I feel that my knowledge is most embedded in human nature and understanding cause and effects of things. And you know, we had a terrorist attack and that cause and effect. We had a financial meltdown that had a cause and effect. When you have a health crisis, it is just not going to be the same. And it's not going to be on the same timeline that other things might be a little more predictable. I mean, if you, if you all recall, you know, in the like third week or fourth week of March, you know, economists were like, well, we're predicting a V recovery here in the, and I'm like, what? So I think that confidence is, is a lot. Um, I also think that, you know, what, what, what the, um, I think that the political environment that we're experiencing locally in New York, we can, let's not go international, let's not go national, but locally has people, it's, it's accelerating their timelines. 100%. I totally agree with that. I think the people that I think the people that have a, a large percentage of the people that have left were going to leave anyway, and COVID accelerated that decision. I also think that the stories of people leaving, sure there are people leaving, there's thousands of people that have left, but these are thousands of people out of eight million in the city. Also, I believe that that's that's going to be temporary to a certain degree. Um, Fritz Friegen, who's our executive director of leasing, he, he found a study that was, they went, to the, they went to the U.S. Postal Service and they found out how many between March and July, how many temporary changes of address there were. There were 400,000 temporary changes of address, but only 115 some thousand of those were actually for out of New York City. So a lot of that has been overblown and a lot of the movement that's happened has been interborough. People going from Manhattan to a different place in Manhattan, Manhattan to Brooklyn, Brooklyn to Queens, but not necessarily as many going out as anticipated. And a lot of people that are going out, I personally believe it's temporary and it's gonna create a bubble in your market, John. Yeah, totally. Scott, uh, Scott are they right? Now, let me introduce Scott Hobbs. Scott Hobbs is on the call, and he's not only a builder of fine custom homes in Connecticut and in the Hamptons and in Westchester and really nice apartments in New York. So Scott has a foot in the suburbs and a foot in the city. How are you seeing behaviors change both going in the first half of the pandemic? And now what I'm hearing from Louise is there's been a bit of a change since June. So I want to hear how are you seeing attitudes change? Are people spending more money, sure. less money, or are they spending it differently over the last couple of months? Well, I think, I think we've definitely seen out here in the, in the suburbs, and we're also in northern New Jersey, but the suburbs and the Hamptons, um, that 
people are, they, they want to have somewhere else to go and it's important for them to have somewhere else to go. So, you know, a lot of folks had summer houses and now you're taking your summer house and you're making it into your permanent residence. You had one couple that we were just finishing up a, a, what was going to be a family house in um, Greenwich for the summer. And it really became the fact that they had their extended family of, I think their three kids with their families and grandchildren and stuff all living there. And it was just, it became almost pretty much their permanent residence, but they're not moving out of New York. I mean, they're keeping their New York City presence. They have their New York City apartment. It's not gone away. It's just they've kind of switched from a primary residence in the city to a primary residence in the suburbs. And is it likely that that will go back? Yes. And, and I mean, I think it will go back. Not everybody. I mean, there's also a whole demographic issue going on with millennials and having school-aged children. And if you have school-aged children, there's definitely a pull toward the suburbs anyway for a, a large number of those people. And we were seeing that was already starting. And I think the pandemic accelerated that. I think one of the biggest issues in New York City and the kind of almost the, the, um, the biggest Rubik's Cube to, to solve is elevators. And that's the biggest, that's the hardest part. But as we see with COVID treatments, COVID treatments are coming along. They're coming along fast and you're coming up with vaccines and you're coming up with other stuff. So if we're looking toward next summer, the reality is COVID is a very active memory, but it's, it's not a threat. You know, New York has had a long habit of coming back very strong and quickly. And we certainly, we have some of our, uh, our suburb, our New York City and suburb clients that, you know, they were looking for an apartment in New York City before COVID broke. And right now they're going, boy, I'm going to get a great deal on something. And they're aggressively, actively looking for something else still in New York. So I don't see that, you know, New York is a huge pull. It's always going to, it should always be a pull as long as, again, the, the treatments for COVID and all of that diminishes. And, you know, it, as with a lot of places, New York has some governance issues that I think they can work out. And New York's shown over time that they do work it out and yeah. it goes through different periods. So hopefully that will return because I think it's good for all of us to have New York. I think it's good for the United States to have New York be a healthy place. Are you busy? We're, we're very busy. We were busy going into it. And that was good because there's no question at the very beginning. I mean, as with many businesses, there was crickets chirping. And, you know, all of our New York um, work was shut down for three months. That was very uh, traumatic. Um, we're still seeing there, there's a lot of activity out there. All the architects at this point are busy. The building departments are all busy. And I mean, probably as one piece of advice for people buying something is if you're buying something and want to do work, you can't start planning it soon enough because just you, it's going to take a long time to get the architects and engineers involved in it, to line up the contractors, to get the approvals. And the sooner you start, the more likely you'll be able to actually, you know, do something when you want to do it. John, so, can I just ahead. real quick, excuse me. I wanted to just ask Scott, excuse me. Uh, how many projects do you work on in one given, I mean, how many teams do you have floating in your, in your trifecta? Sure. We, we keep about, uh, we keep about four to five projects going in the city. We've got about six in the Hamptons at a time. We got about a dozen in the Fairchester area, cutting up into Litchfield and a little bit of Duchess. And then we have about five or six out in Northern New Jersey too. What's the and average size? It's, uh, it, it's tough to come up with an average. I mean, I, it's better to say that under our, our distinguished home projects, you know, any from two, we're from two and a half million up to 40. And then we also have a care division and our care division takes care of ongoing maintenance and upkeep issues for houses and also smaller renovations. And they are really, really, really busy yeah. right now. They are so absolutely flat out. Are you I, I got to say, you know, I, I heard that this pandemic was going to be really tough on the economy and we were going to go into the this period of indecision before a national election. And yet you're telling me you're as busy as ever and your your projects are one, two, three year projects and there's been no diminishment of energy in your market. And Louise well, has never been busier than she is right now. And right. so... I'm trying to understand whether I can believe that the, the, the city's doing fine, the suburbs well, are doing me, fine, the builders are doing fine. Hey, let me caveat. Yeah, sorry, that's the caveat too. You yeah. go first, Scott. So I mean, first off, there, there was a period when I mean, there was like three months where, I mean, again, crickets chirping, there's terror. And that has, you know, it, it, there's a long lead time on all of these things. I think as Louise had pointed out there, it's like you have this long period of getting the listings, of listing them, getting the word out there, talking to people, and then all the buds bloom at a certain point. 
but there's definitely a break inside the system and trying to get approvals. We have a break right now. So there's going to, there is gaps. And in New York, there's still a lot more indecision for people doing construction versus in the suburb markets. But we don't, but we still see people have stuff going on. It's just, when will they pull the trigger and when will they get their approvals? Sorry. And to say that, I, I don't even know what my sales are this year, but, but, you know, and I, I, I definitely don't want to really focus on it right now, but you know, if I look at historically of doing 180 to 250 million every single year, am I there? I'm probably not. I would say I'm probably 70, 60% from last year, but, um, or historically. And that, that being said, what I, all I'm saying is that what I see is momentum beginning because my business ranges from 665,000 to 15 million. And I have 40 listings. I have a lot of data right there. I'm in every niche of the market right now, except for I just closed on my, on my last townhouse. But, you know, I think what, what I, what is interesting to me of those eight deals that I'm talking about, they all range from a million to three, eight, and so a million one to three, eight, most of them in the 2 million bucket. So that's a niche of the market that is frothy. And they almost are like, it's, it's more about the quality of life upgrade and locking and nesting, which is just as much important financially as it is emotionally. 75% of our deals are 2 million and below right now. Yeah. And in fact, the last two weeks we did, um, I think it was 225 transactions equaling about 332 million in two weeks just just us it's pretty amazing ranging from 250,000 to 22 million who's buying at a million roberto identified the million and a half to two million is the sweet spot in the new york city market and i heard earlier a, a passing reference to millennials and the importance of looking at the demo, uh, the demographics. Who's buying the $2 million apartments? Are they coming from out of town or are they trading up in the New York market? Uh, they're definitely looking for opportunities to trade up, but I think that a lot of people are not, they're looking for the 20% off and there's not 20% off. There's 15% off and there's still, like Louise had mentioned earlier, there's 15%. Every one of my I, deals are within 1% or above the asking price. I'm talking. If you're dealing with Louise, you're paying full price. Full price. <laughs> there are anomalies. No, but there are anomalies that are happening. It's but really as you go up the price, price scale, if you go up the price scale, if you look at my, if you look at my newsletter, and I, I've got this amazing chart from uh, Urban Digs right here, uh, for deals that are below a million, the negotiation is 7.9%. Between one and two million, it's about 9.6%. Between two and three million, it's 11.6%. Between three and five million, 3.9%. And then if you get above, if you get to five to 10 million, there were a couple, and the thing is, there's only a handful of deals that are happening at that level. There, it's, the velocity is increasing, but there was a 20% average negotiation. But that's, uh, I mean, I have a client right now who's- deals. Yeah, there were seven deals north of 10 million. Yeah, in the so that's not, a, that's not a big sample. You know, I have a, and the problem is, you know, I, there's also, I have a client who's been, we've been looking for the longest time and maybe once a year we find something that's appropriate for him. And he's in the five, six, seven million range. There's something we saw last week that he really, really likes because he doesn't want to do any work and it has to be almost pristine and perfect. And he, his perception is the market's way off and the market, this apartment is grossly overpriced. So he wants to negotiate 15, 20%. The fact is it's one of those special apartments that he's not the only person who's been looking that long. So now the apartment's only been on the market for about a week. They've got two or three people that are already interested. And he just can't, he can't wrap his head around that concept that he's not going to be able to negotiate a substantial amount. I think it's going to become a priority of whether he wants to feel he made a great deal and beat the system or he's going to have a home or not. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's going to, I feel he's going to lose it. He's going to lose it. I actually had a, a situation where over the 4th of July weekend, a client called up taking a look at a property next door to them and just making a long story short, they had looked for like a year for their other property, for the property they finally bought and they negotiated and got a great deal. 
And I came out that day to help them look at the property because I didn't want to wait through the weekend because I didn't know if it would be there. And he asked at the end, like, what's the COVID discount? And I told him in, in this area, it's like, there is no discount. And matter of fact, if you're serious about the property, you need to put in an offer this weekend. I mean, I don't care what the offer is and I won't advise you on that, but you got to put in an offer this weekend to let them know that you're serious and understand that the offer isn't good enough. They may not think you are serious and by Monday it may be gone. And sure enough, it turned into a bidding war and they ended up getting the property, which was very good for them. And I think the right thing for them. But just, I mean, in a three month period, the suburbs changed in a heartbeat under that negotiation. And for a special good property, if you're not ready to move, you're, you're, you have a problem. I and mean, it's good to see that in New York, you have the same thing for the special properties. Yeah. Louise, you said it was an efficient market earlier. And I have to say, I think it's anything but. I see uh, huge swings in valuations um, and uh, I can't predict which houses are gonna sell quickly and which ones are not. Um, and um, so, and I think that at least out here in Connecticut, we're having a great deal of difficulty pricing uh, houses. You can look at the historical 12 months of sales and it doesn't help you. Now you said already that you have to call people because the market's moving that fast. No, no. Happening now. No, no. Let me, let me reset that. First of all, I'm, I live in a vertical environment. So I have, I have stacked inventory. Mira of something, it's a little bit easier to gather the data. And I personally, you know, I'm known for my research and data and, and, and because it's the only way I can make sense of moments in time. And it's the only way I can be the expert in that particular apartment or home is by drilling down deep into that understanding. And so sometimes my owners need to see what the peak of the market was because they keep thinking that their next door neighbor in 2015 got four and a half million dollars. And I'm recommending that they come on the market for 3.3. And they're like, how dare you? And, but, but I can just say, so that was 2015. Look at your neighbor that sold in 16 and look at your neighbor who sold in 17 and look at your neighbor who sold in 18. And by the way, 16 apartments came on the market in your building and couldn't sell and took them off the market. So we can find principles to stand on an asking price or we can find data to stand on an asking price. And, and, and that is even, you know, I do start to talk a little bit about like, if this was before COVID in March, when we had huge traction, you know, I was doing four to seven transactions a month, January, February, and March, which was kind of like old school, old days. And it was also because I was pricing with a very focused attention to real time numbers, which is not even what's closed, what's in contract and why is it in contract and what was the motivation behind that low sale where we come to learn that the owner had already bought something. So that kind of texture to a deal does create efficiency. Okay. I have a question from Heather. I don't know if she wants to ask it yet. I unmuted her. I also see a question from James Bosch um, and I'll ask it, but I'm going to unmute him as well in case he wants to follow up. Uh, he wants to know whether we're all excited about the market in New York and Connecticut, but are we both competing for a smaller pie? Are we both basically uh, losing out uh, because of the high cost of this area, the Northeast? Are we losing out to uh, Florida, Texas, and the other states? I know a great deal was, ma uh, was made of the new Pieta Ter tax. Uh, only within the last month. Uh, there's been a lot of noise about Pieta Ter Tax. Uh, Connecticut is talking about, thank God we have a rainy day fund. Um, so I know that there's a great deal of ta tax anxiety. Is James right? Are we both talking about a momentary excitement of a migration maybe from New York to Connecticut, which makes New Connecticut feel good, and some movement in New York because people are maybe taking advantage and trading up but 
are we missing the bigger picture that the Northeast is not, is not getting it done? I mean, I'll take that, but Roberto, I'll let you start if you want to start. What do you, what, you want me to go? You, I mean, I think there's, there's a little bit of truth to every single scenario there and everybody's situations are unique. I think on a, on a whole, people like leaving the Northeast, um, I mean, that will happen, but I mean, I'm not seeing that in like gross numbers or gross like uh, philosophy. I mean, there's a couple of people with tremendous means who have the ability to pick up and go and they're gone. And those are people that are typically closer to retirement or they're hedge fund people that can pick up and go and they're running from somewhere else. Um, so we're I both think it's losing our seniors. You're saying we're both losing our seniors and we can get excited about all these $2 million deals that are happening with millennials. But the fact is we're missing key pieces of the market. Well, it's expensive here. Taxes are incredible here and they're only going up. Look, I, I mean, I, I think that um, my, I mean, I don't feel like I'm missing anything in the market. I mean, John, I honestly feel that, you know, that, you know, I was fortunate. I came to New York literally with 800 bucks, $807 to be exact. I came to New York and, you know, I feel like that, people are not coming here to pay higher taxes. They're coming here because they're drawn to the energy. I can't even imagine living anywhere else. And, you know, people are like, oh my God, are you leaving the city? I was like, yeah, I've been in Montauk. I mean, thankfully I have a house in Montauk, a house in Bridgehampton, a house in Woodstock. I'm long on real estate. And I'm always going to be an investor in the market because that's what I know. And, and so I believe that I don't feel that I'm missing people going away. I am very purposefully helping people do estate planning with the idea as their advisor that yes, there might be a Peter Terra tax. They, they have a $50 million asset in Aspen and they have a place in a huge place in Connecticut and they're moving to Florida because of, because they don't want to pay taxes and this is a billionaire. So that pattern is not the masses. You also have to remember New York city, is a city of renters. Only 38% of New York can be bought, period. Not negotiable. And everybody talks about all the construction that's going on. Yes, you had, a, you had an amazing mayor that literally rezoned 40% of our landmass to create the opportunities and the drawing the technology and drawing the diversity from finance to other industries. So, I just think that we're, we're going to, we're going to loop, people are going to come and go. And I don't feel like we're missing something, John, like you're getting something I don't get. And, and I don't look at it that way at all. This, the, the question struck a nerve with Ashley O'Neill. She's sitting there in Palm Beach, Florida. And Hi, she, Ashley. Tell us, Ashley, are New Yorkers and Connecticut retirees moving to Palm Beach? I'm happy to report yes. It would struck me, you all, you're from my old stomping grounds of starting in New York City and 30 years in New Canaan and Rowayton. So I know some of you and um, it's really been fun to learn that Halstead is now with Brown Harris because that's where I moved to and joined two years ago down here in Palm Beach. The other thing that struck me was you are all indoors and I keep having to my hair is blowing, so I keep because it's 80 something down here. So if you all listen, the market is just like it is out in Connecticut, which I'm so happy for you guys. I'm thrilled that it picked up. Um, we're having the same surge down here as Louise was just talking about. The tax benefits are obviously way different than Connecticut, that's for sure. And I just the third quarter report just came out, and single family homes for the same quarter last year are up 245 percent. Same with Aspen, by the way. That's, that's, that goes hand in hand for sure. So um, if you have anybody that doesn't want to be in the cold anymore like me, um, I could take great care of them down here in Palm Beach. And it's good to see the Northerners again. I, I miss you guys. All right. I will quickly point out, I, I just changed my virtual background. And, and today's actually 75 degrees. It is a beautiful fall day. And I just put up a, one of the uh, scene from like going jogging this morning with the color and the greenery and, and it is one of the parts, I mean, you, as, as you know, I mean, it, it's Connecticut and New York and New Jersey, and you're, you're close to the mountains, you're close to the sound, you get four seasons, you can ski. And as long as the cultural events are allowed to happen, 
there's just such a pull for New York and, and the suburb and the suburban areas for concerts, live music, museums, just arts, just so many great things under COVID. And if COVID were to go on for two or three years, then that's a, a whole different animal. And that, that becomes really scary. But um, I, I do think that Connecticut does have an issue that, and New York and New Jersey, that if we don't get good governance, you can see where Florida not too long ago had horrible governance, and then they turned that around relatively quickly and is now very well governed. And in the Northeast is definitely paying a price for that and will continue to do so. You know, John, the reality is that, you know, if you, if you, the New York Times reported yesterday, big tech is coming in, Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, they're all expanding their footprints in the city. So maybe it's just a demographical change where it's a different type of person who's going to come live here. And the fact is the flight of everybody out of here is making, is actually creating better deals in Manhattan. People going to Brooklyn's better deal in Manhattan. People going to Connecticut, it's a better deal in Manhattan. Those people are going to have places to live and they're going to have choices. And, and for you know, the first time that, that is yeah, for the first time, the deals they always wanted are now here and it's now it's amazing. You know, and yeah, and we look at we look at the growth from the Great Recession, and we and and how sort of unsustainable with that building boom that we had, and you know our cycles in real estate are not what they used to be because they used to be almost twelve to fifteen years, then they shortened to ten. Now they're getting like seven. So we need it to be a long, steady, healthy recovery. All right, I keep hearing now, now, now. So can we break down that word now? Because I got a lot of people asking me or telling me, you know what, I've decided to, uh, that there's so little inventory right now in Connecticut, I've decided to release uh, in Manhattan where I got a fabulous deal on the rental and I'm gonna just try again next year. So what, what advice do we have, Scott, uh, Louise, Robert, uh, what advice do we have for these people who are saying, you know, I think I might wait till the spring because I can, or I think I might wait till next year because I can. Uh, you know, what is our crystal ball um, on the impact of the, well, first of all, the impact of COVID, because you just had the mayor shut down big sections of the city. And last night, Paris uh, put the whole, the whole freaking town under a curfew. So there's still anxiety around the pandemic. We're not out of the woods yet. We still have an election. And they say that after an election, you have indecision before an election. And then you have, um, historically, after an election, people feel confidence in a direction and start making decisions again. So long-winded question of saying, talk to me about timing. What are you advising your customers at both at all ends of the spectrum? You want to start, Scott? Because I know Louise has, has a lot to I've say. I've got a lot to say, but I'll keep my mouth shut. Well, I, I think Louise had started out with the big thing about just making sure you consult with your client. I mean, everyone has a different situation and making sure that they do what's right for their situation. Um, and, and it literally is a crystal ball. I mean, I'll tell you in two years whether or not you made the right decision or not. I think there's very good indicators that things will be strong in the, um, at least in the suburbs for the foreseeable future. What is you know, the Anything can happen. Future? Yeah, the next, I'd say the, the next five to 10 years, I mean, you've got the schools, you've got the, the access to New York, you've got a whole series of, of, of demographics that are lining up. You're talking about Connecticut? Connecticut? Connecticut, New Jersey, and then Hamptons the is a little bit different Hamptons, under the roof. Exactly. The secondary right? market, yeah. And, and the fact that you also have the, the benefit for the suburbs right now is that more and more you have the telecommuting where you don't have to be in New York five days a week. I think more companies will go back to being, you, you've got to show up at least you know, two or three days a week. So I don't think you can get too far from New York, but I don't think you have to do it every day. And that makes it a little bit easier to go ahead and move. You know, it used to be an hour from New York. So if you're an hour and 20, if you're an hour and a half, even if you're two hours, it becomes possible if you're only doing it you know, four or five times a month as opposed to every single day. So my guess is that things will be relatively strong for a while. If you were looking to buy, you knew what you were going to buy and you felt confident in your financial situation, I'd be more tempted to buy. However, if you don't understand the areas and you're not confident you're going to be in the right place, you know, renting, there's a lot that goes for it. And it'll just be tough for a while because the rental market's even hotter than the house market. But just my two cents. Who else? 
Roberto, go. Well, I, from, from New York standpoint, I, I've been through so many downturns and downturns and downturns and so many people trying to time things. You're not that old. <laughs> I'm pretty old. I'm as old as you. We discerned that. <laughs> I'm older than all of y'all. I not doubt it. Um, but the, ter the turn here, granted, this, this time is a little bit more, the, the issues are a little more deeply rooted this, this time, but the turn happens and it happens fast. And the next thing you know, people are chasing it back up. And I personally believe that by next spring, summer, things, vaccines, people's comfort level with how things are functioning in the city. I mean, you, you go outside right now, the cities, if people didn't have masks on in many ways, you wouldn't know if there was anything wrong. The city's just pumping and people have their systems in place of how they're functioning with it. But I believe come next spring, next summer, that people are gonna start to want to get settled for the following school year, which is a year from now. So I believe that next spring and summer here could be extremely busy. And if you're gonna to try to time that, you're gonna be in a situation, you could plausibly be in a situation where you're really competing for properties. So that downturn, you have already potentially have missed it. And right now is a time period where interest rates are unbelievably low. And the uncertainty of now is when you wanna capture that. That's when you wanna capture, you know, the people that have made the best deals ever, my client who made the best deal ever was in March, March April of 2009. I think the stock market had hit something like 6,800. It literally had dipped. He bought right then. He's made more out of equity on his property than any client I have. And that was when it, people thought the world was ending. That's my two cents. Well, I don't necessarily agree. <laughs> I don't agree with exactly. I mean, I agree that people are trying to time the market. But again, my advice is you know, if you're really trying to upgrade for the next decade, my opinion is sell today. Because I believe people's apartments are worth more today. And I think they will be possibly wor worth less for a domino effect. One thing you did not address at all, Roberto, is the cause and effect. Like, unlike a stock market that peaks and goes and does what it does through real-time news you real estate you can't see what's happening today for about 16 months where a pattern a trend has started and office buildings retail restaurant how long are those and what's the cause and effect of that because i i think that that is a reality nobody's talking about because i can you know purchase my home today and be fine if it's a 10 year play and it drops 50,000, 200,000 and I'm, and I'm still, my, my real value is in liquidating today and then making sure you only purchase when it feels right and, it, and data can confirm that. So those are the things that I feel that-, that But so how much more, how much more room are you, are you seeing on a downside? We have come from five years of the, of the air slightly coming out of a balloon. We started from the, the, the decline. This COVID came right at a time when the market was finally starting to move. Yep. Finally right. starting to move. Everybody was anticipating an extremely successful year. And we've fallen. And it's, but the, it just, there's not that much more room. There is definitely some room for sure. But again, it's a matter of the timing of the marketplace. It yep. will become competitive. And people who are trying to buy are going to find themselves in bidding situations. Yes. And, the, and my point is, don't forget that if you're holding risk or you're holding an asset, it's your, you get to live in your, it's not like a portfolio, you're living in your home today. But if you're trying to make, and, and by the way, all eight of those deals are people I've sold in their homes and they're upgrading very purposefully. But it's the science and the finesse. they're buying but they're, they're buying. buying. Yes, because they see the value of the next decade. They are expanding their footprint. We agree. We agree. I'm we just, agree. Yeah, but I also feel that they should be selling today. Some people feel they should wait and sell later. And I'm, I not, saying, I'm not saying that. I yeah. didn't say that. I was just talking about buying. Okay. I was talking about buying. Are you both 
painting the whole New York market with one brush. You feel the same way about Brooklyn as you do Manhattan and the $40 million penthouse and the $1 million pied-a-terre? Really? Everything's a micro market and it all depends upon people's individual situations. But you're both bullish at the high end and low end of the market. I don't know if I would say I'm bullish. I, I feel it's an opportunistic. No, I, I'm saying that I believe it's an opportunistic moment and will continue to be. I mean, if you look at the construction and the number of units and the developments that's happening there and the growth of tens of thousands of units, and again, I keep talking, we went from a 35 to a 38, maybe we're at 39% of New York. And I, when I talk about New York, I talk about all the boroughs. The construction that's happened and the growth that's happened in, in Brooklyn since probably 2008 or nine, um, when we look at that stuff, the, those numbers, you know, it's cheaper to live in in, in financial district than it is to live in most parts of Brooklyn. And so it's the far parts of Brooklyn, the further away you are, I believe that those markets are going to have issues absorbing all the product. So I think that for people who are looking at development projects, look at all those deals where they're 70% where done and they're waiting for their profit to get out. Those are where the deals are, can be made. They're all coming back to Manhattan. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you, in the most recent market report, when I looked at the, the 16 towns in Fairfield County, and I mapped them as to which ones in, are doing the best increase in total dollar volume, what I found was it wasn't the wealthy versus the less expensive markets. The difference was in the density. And the more dense markets were growing more slowly than the less dense markets. Specifically, Westport and Canaan were doing uh, double digit fantastic. Westport was the number one uh, out of the 16 markets with 75, 77% uh, year over year um, increase in total dollar volume. Um, the bottom most market was Stanford, uh, only showing um, about a month ago, 2% growth. So you had probably eight towns showing 15% growth or less, and you had eight towns showing 25 to 75% growth of their real estate markets um, in the first nine months of this year. Given that, is that, backdrop, is that relative to value? For example, Tribeca being very expensive and the Lower East Side not being as expensive. Is it follow no, that grid? That's the distinction I want to draw. So Greenwich alongside of Norwalk and Stanford is what I consider to be have a greater density. And the Greenwich market was not showing, for whatever reason, those big towns were showing 10%, 8% year over year, over year growth. Now, I mean, uh, Old Greenwich is the most expensive market in the county with an average price of about $2.3 million for a house. Um, and yet, you know, so I, I was finding that it was the, the where, where we saw the greatest growth was in the smaller towns, Weston, Westport. Um, and if you try and figure out why, one of the reasons was that the, the commute, the Metro North commute, became a lot less important uh, than it was a year or two or 10 years ago. Mm. People were looking for different mix of, of, of qualities. Uh, and so suddenly North Stamford was hot and Weston was hot and Easton and Reading and places that I could drive to within an hour and a half uh, were suddenly hot. Uh, North and Canaan was suddenly hot. I think so what's the equivalent What's the equivalent trend in Man in New York? I would I would say that I was about to just sort of say that I would say that's exactly what happened in Brooklyn. So you have an anchor like Tesla taking a commercial uh, spot in Red Hook, or you have a, 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 a artist center that then gives birth to two cafes and a little restaurant and a little bookstore and a little grocer. And the next thing you know, there is, you know, eight blocks away, a, a, a 10 story development project, and that's your anchor. And that becomes where 
you know, when you have, I, I believe that is sort of the way that you see Brooklyn creeping out and in, 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 in the last three years, four years, Sunnyside Queens and different parts of Queens start to have absorption and opportunity where if you cross from, you know, moving, keep moving further away, you see that, you know, the millennial generation is now looking for, um, you know, places where they can, they can work from home a third, before COVID, they were working 30% from home. And I, you know, I, so I just think that that is the same analogy that you're just giving about the little towns that aren't the anchor breadwinners. I, I, that makes sense to me that those are um, leading in growth faster than would have been projected. Roberto? I, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I, I, I think that, that, I think she's right. And I think you can also go to look at projects on the Upper West Side that are in prime Harlem, which I would now actually call Columbia, um, the, the, the Vanderwater project, which was pulling, you know, 23 or whatever crazy, there were crazy price per square foot numbers, but that was trying to be an anchor in a location with a lot of amenities. And, and you know, thank God we have bold developers that want to create a lifestyle building in an unventured territory. That's what I did with 50 Madison Avenue in the East Village with the Theater for the New City, where you put these little anchors in and then the market comes to it. That's what those blind, those blurred boundaries of New York City have been, for the 30 years I've been doing it, have been pushed deal by deal. And it's kind of exciting to actually witness it and experience it. And this will give birth to those other boundaries being passed by. You'll have somebody like Scott who would have never been doing, you know, been asked to, to do a deal in a certain neighborhood, if you will, because maybe he would have been considered the high end. But that person, you know, I have a lot of clients that have rolled the dice in a neighborhood and had the best architect and the best contractor and invested in a low cost basis and broke the records when they sold it. But they only did it for themselves. They didn't try to calculate that purchase. I'm going to New York and I want a deal. I see somebody, the last comment in the chat was, I totally agree with Louise. There's a big level of denial at the moment in the New York City economy. So if there's a lot of denial, where can I go to find a deal in New York City? But where do you think, where do you think they've reckoned with the change and their and and their moving houses, they're mo they're moving apartments, they're moving brownstones. Where can I, I go for a deal? I mean, I think the brown house, the townhouse market is unbelievably opportunistic, but still not acknowledging the reality of, you know, there 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 are people in the industry that are like, oh, the townhouse market's going to go through the roof because there's no elevator, there's no people, there's outdoor. And yes, there might be some of that absorption from that, but I still think there's there's still fallout happening in townhouses from the accelerated growth from 2009 through 15, where these numbers were crazy numbers. And you know, I know I sold a house in 17, maybe in 16. That 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 in 15, I thought it was worth 23 million dollars, and ultimately. I said, it's not worth 23 million as we started into 16, but they had their mind set on what they wanted. We sold it for 14.75 million and it was 10,000 square feet. And it was off Madison in the East eighties. So I feel like that is still, you can find those pockets and it all depends on what, what the story is behind the individual often. Scott, you and I were talking about demographics this past weekend. Talk to me about millennials. Talk to me about um, where is the money? Uh, I believe that the millennial generation is a lot wealthier and are, are coming into wealth. And are they the ones spending with you? Or are you finding people at the end of their career, the retirees are spending and uh, picking up these second homes? Where's the money coming from? 
we're actually, I mean, luckily we're across the board. I mean, we have, we're doing a couple for someone in that, that's in their late seventies. We're doing stuff for people in their thirties. And it's, um, I, I think the millennials, I mean, they're the biggest demographic group to come through. They have the, the, again, the kids are getting to be school age, which of course drives a whole lot of things. Um, I think the millennials it, just timing wise, they were behind our generations where, you know, just a little bit later getting out of school, a little bit later getting married. You have the financial crisis in the middle of it. There's this uh, school debt is something which is, a, again, the college debt is a uh, problem for a lot of millennials trying to go ahead and build up that nest egg to buy stuff. But we still find people from across the board and, you know, financial services still leads the area. But now you're getting more tech people, more marketing people, more industrialist folks. And and it's a, it's a pretty broad spectrum. So, um and, and I hope that that will continue. Uh, it is tricky in that, uh, you know, of course, as you move from a rental market to a house, that's a big change and you learn a whole lot as a homeowner. And so a lot of the people that have now moved out to, from the city to the country, you know, they're in their first houses. We'll see how they do under the first house. And if they go to a second house or a third house and some of them succeed more than others and figure out what their real likes and dislikes are, hopefully our business on the custom side will continue to uh, grow over time. I think I answered that question, but. I think I lost the screen. I can't see what you see. Um, I, you're frozen, John. Am I frozen? Yeah. Am I okay now? You're kind of smiling. Oh, sure. looking a little <laughs> stiff. I'm still here. Oh, there you are. Um, the election. Is the election going to affect the New York or Connecticut market at all? I haven't heard anybody talking about the election. It's almost a, a complete non-event. Well, for... unfortunately, it's not a mayoral election, but um, uh, <laughs> just saying. I, agree. Um, I mean, you know, listen, I I, I looked am... up the ninety. I looked up the two thousand sixteen, and housing prices rose before the election, and after the election, they rose more. Is that what's happening now? He, no, the election is notoriously puts a tremendous amount of uncertainty into the marketplace. And in the fall of a presidential election year, things definitely start to slow. I, I don't think feel so that, slow. So how do you explain my circumstance? Well, but I think that the uncertainty that we've had, we've met, has started in March. And now we've gotten so accustomed to that level of uncertainty and things are actually, it almost feels like spring because we're getting back, we're starting to get back to normal. Things are happening and the election is almost secondary to that. Taxes are gonna go up. Everybody knows all these different things are gonna happen. It's just a matter of, is it gonna be smooth or is it not gonna be smooth? I yeah. think it's built in. I think it's already built in. You know, yeah, who wants to flip a coin on who's winning the election? So it doesn't really matter. I mean, these two these two candidates couldn't be more different and rep representing polar, you know, difference and the implications, the tax implications, the 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 growth implications. I mean, the the implications are enormous between one approach and the other approach, and nobody's talking about that as a factor weighing into their decision, really. I think, well, Roberto, I think, had a good, uh, a good observation that this has been the biggest period of uncertainty in virtually all of our lives. So I think that there has been a tampering inside of the election. But once the election is done, everyone looks up and says, well, am I going to put my life on hold for four years? And the reality is your kids are getting older. The kitchen still needs to be redone. Another baby's coming along. You're retiring. You're moving. And you know, you're not going to wait four years. I mean, as you get close to the election, you know, things could get even more busy very soon after the election, and they would be more busy now, except for there are some people on the sideline. But I do think COVID has been a much bigger factor than the election this year, even would, though this is one of the more contentious. Yeah, and I think that COVID and and you know, it's been it's been a it's it's been politicized, unfortunately, pretty tremendously, uh, where I think people just can't even listen to it anymore. That they have to kind of like do this, like cut the noise out. That's actually my advice. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to make a statement. You tell me if it's right or wrong, but I it's wrong, John. that New Yorkers <laughs> look at Biden and they say, he's going to be nice to New York. 
And I think the New Yorkers look at Trump and they say, he's already done the worst to us he could do. He already gave us salt and taxes. So there's nothing else that a Trump administration is going to do to New York. And um, so I think that New York feels like they've been punished enough for the last couple of years, right? And it's not going to get any worse. It can only get better. Is that fair? Is that a fair? I think Chuck Schumer is, is a fan of New York. Uh, I think that he would advocate if he's got the minority, but you know, who knows? I mean, I, I, it, anything's better than what we got. So. And John, no, as a native New Yorker, John, as a native New Yorker, are you saying that you actually think New Yorkers don't think things can get worse? That's a characteristic. But I do think that everyone, uh, that again, people overall become optimistic in spite of what they do say, and people do have to get on with their lives. I mean, it, and once it's over, it's over, and you got four more years, and you're not going to wait four years to do what you have to in your life. So we have a few more minutes in front of us. We got a lot of, Question. we have 95 Question. people, mostly agents on this call. How do I get in front of those New Yorkers? Uh, how, do I, how do I generate business? How do I get in front of these people who are thinking about making a move? How does Louise do it for people who are trying to make a, a crosstown move? How does Scott get in front of people who are thinking about building a big house out in the country? How are we, how are we uh, generating, I guess, the relationships we need for our businesses? Anybody wanna, anybody have a tip? I believe that New Yorkers like Louise move through a building. They have a reputation in that building. People in the building tell other people in the building. And therefore, it's very easy to establish a reputation building by building. Is that fair? Uh, I think deal by deal. You know, for me, it used to be like, you know, I would get a referral from Goldman Sachs, you know, fixed income. It would be like, oh, I just did the whole desk. And then it would be like, oh, Whitehall, real estate, whole desk. And so... I think that it's one deal at a time. I also will say for agents, you know, that dialing for dollars and generosity of knowledge is massive. In other words, I try always to be of service to another agent if they ask me for financials for anything, because what goes around comes around. I have brought over probably 75 to 80 brokers into the business, just interviewing people going, Hey, would you have coffee with me? And I have to tell you me taking that time to do that. I can't tell you how many times they've been eventually years later in the business. And I'm on the other side of a negotiation and I get those deals because you know what they remember. So be generous to your industry colleagues, buyers and sellers are here today and gone tomorrow but you need Scott forever. You need John forever. You need me forever. And I need you. And that would be my best advice. Scott, Roberto. Roberto, go ahead. I mean, I, I believe it, it is totally deal by deal. And I just, I, it's a matter of treating everybody with respect and doing what's right for the people who you're working with. I mean, it always come back to you. I've had so many deals that just didn't work out and we didn't make, you know, we negotiated in a certain way, but I knew that those were the limitations that these certain buyers might have had or a seller might have had. And you just did the right thing. The deal didn't happen. But then down the road, you know, when you least expect it, that phone rings and you're like, you know, rem I remember you or I got your name from so-and-so, you know, I have one client, one of my biggest clients, something, it was a really peculiar situation, but he bought an 11 plus million dollar apartment. And it just didn't happen with me and we were working together, but he trusted me and he loved me. And I eventually did sell his apartment when he came around. But one of his colleagues called me up and said, listen, so-and-so told me to call you and he told me I have to buy a really expensive apartment from you. And he bought a $16 million apartment from me. So, you know, it just deal by deal, do the right thing. Yeah. I, th I think the key is to be part of a third generation family business with a 65 year history of doing things right. Business but just falls in your lap, right? <laughs> But, it, but even still, what, it, what is, I mean, playing along with uh, Luis and Roberto here, I mean, even still, everything is just one deal. It's one deal at a time. You're one deal away from screwing up your reputation. You want to make sure that you do the right by your clients. You know, don't do bad deals that don't help your client because that'll come back to bite you. Whereas, again, if you walk away from something, you can still end up doing better by walking away sometimes um than you can by doing that deal so don't force it don't lie to the client don't be overly rosy tell the truth and you know work your butt off for them to get them the best deal 
and 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 the, some contractor that I said that said something to me early early in the business um, said, you know, what I learned from my dad was that the last ten percent sometimes of the deal of the whole project is 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 what they remember. So how you exit, and I was thinking that's interesting. So they all love me when they start with me. I want them to love me when they leave me, you know? And that is why you can't, you know, you can't go like, I'm too busy. We've done that deal. We're in contract. What I can't meet you then I'm too busy. I think it's so important for people to feel, you know, um, important heard and that it doesn't matter. You know, we're going to end in the, and the, the way I started, which is with all that integrity and, and, and dedication. I like that. All right. So it's five o'clock. This was an experiment. I think it worked from, from where I'm sitting. It worked. I think we got a lot covered this week. I think this is an important conversation to have. I'm so glad a hundred people joined us for it. I think we should continue to commit to doing this regularly on Thursdays. Doesn't mean you have to join me every Thursday, you know, for, but I would like to think that the people who joined us today will come back the next week and the next week and perhaps participate in the conversation. I think it's going to be really important that we as agents, as you say, Louise, are uh, communicating with each other and, and um, talking about the market and talking to customers and being, as you said, generous uh, when, you know, when it comes to referring out of market and uh, sharing ideas out of market. So I think this was really successful. I thank you for a really great conversation. I hope you'll come back uh, and we'll organize another one in, in a week, maybe two, um, and see how it goes. Great. Perfection. Thank Thanks, John. Thanks for organizing, John. Love John, you, John. really appreciate it. Cheers. Great, everyone. I would have see, you see you in the hood. Yeah, exactly. Bye -bye. Take care, you. guys. Bye-bye.